Greetings, loyal listener, and thank you for joining me for another adventure here on the Washington Hour Home Podcast. I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and today we'll be trekking deep into the forests of western Washington, looking for a killer and a victim, who many say are one and the same, and certainly one of the finest woodsmen Washington State has ever produced. Today we're hunting a man named John Torno, otherwise known as the Wild Man of the Winucci. In 1911, the misunderstood misanthrope, thought to have gunned down his own nephews, decided to turn his back on civilization for the final time and disappear into the wilderness surrounding the Winoochee River. The manhunt that ensued for the next 19 months resulted in six more deaths, including Tornos, which was nothing short of legendary. I recently read the book John Torno, Villain or Victim, by Bill Lindstrom, and he was gracious enough to sit down with me for an interview. His book should really be considered the seminal work on the subject, as it has been thoroughly researched and is heavily laden with historical detail. Lindstrom uses a small amount of fictional narrative to give three dimensions to many of the characters, but it in no way distracts from the authenticity of the events. To the contrary, Lindstrom's creative license gives the characters humanizing qualities that make them relatable to today's readers, even though more than a century has passed. You'll hear from Bill after a short summary of the story today, and what you'll learn from him and his research is simply amazing. For background this month, I'm going to read a 2003 essay from the website historylink.org that relates the major details of the John Torno story. But I found after only a few paragraphs that there were some assertions made that today's interview subject may contest. Perhaps it's because it was written over 16 years ago and new information has come to light since, or perhaps it's because HistoryLink, though a vital compendium of Washington state history, doesn't have the funding or resources to be continually updating their material when new information surfaces. In the case of the latter, dear listeners, please consider donating to HistoryLink. They're a 501c3 not-for-profit corporation established in 1997 to pioneer innovative approaches to historical research, education, and publishing. Its primary public service activity is the production of HistoryLink.org, the free online encyclopedia of Washington State history, and the nation's first original encyclopedia of community history created expressly for the Internet. If you'd like to donate to HistoryLink, I have no doubt that they would appreciate your support. You can find a link to do so on their website, historylink.org, which I'll include in today's episode notes in the description. And because HistoryLink is offered as a public service, their written content is licensed under a Creative Commons license that encourages reproduction for non-commercial use, which sadly means that I don't make any money on this podcast. Today I'm using Essay 5079 with credit to its author, J. Kingston Pierce, who posted it January 19th, 2003. And as always, I'll have some topical trivia questions somewhere in the story to test your material metal. So rev up your recall and get your brains boiling. Are you aware that I've always appreciated a lot of alliteration? Now the hunt begins for John Torno, the wild man of the Winucci. quick note before we begin, I'm going to interrupt Pierce's telling of the Torno story from time to time with notations about why I think some of the information may not be entirely accurate. When I do, you'll hear this cartoonish owl hoot. 
which kind of felt appropriate since much of today's story takes place deep in the woods. When you hear that sound, I'll briefly note an alternate version of events for your consideration. Okay? Ready? Here we go. A year and a half after killing two teenage boys on Washington's Olympic Peninsula and then disappearing into the deeply forested Wenuchi Valley in southern Grays Harbor County, John Torno, a former mental patient... A uh, quick note, a former mental patient has some negative implications by today's standards. John's brother did have him committed to a mental institution in Oregon for a short time, but he escaped after less than a year and made his way back to the Winucci from Central Oregon on foot. John Torno, a former mental patient who had become a legend among local loggers and a nightmare figure for children of the area. Again, the only evidence John was a nightmare figure for local children is really apocryphal. Maybe the parents used John as a boogeyman of sorts if kids didn't eat their vegetables, but many of the area families actually sympathized with John, going so far as to leave food and supplies out for him to pick up if he was in their vicinity. Anyway, a nightmare figure for children of the area was finally killed in a pitched gun battle in the spring of 1913. The incident was covered in almost gruesome detail by the press, which labeled the fugitive the Cougar Man, a mad Daniel Boone, and the Wild Man of the Winucci. But not even Torno's family could tell precisely what had turned him from a Thorovian loner into a murderer wanted dead or alive. <laughs> Sorry, I promise the whole story isn't going to be like this. There's no evidence that John was wanted, quote, dead or alive, since no wanted posters have ever surfaced. But after the killing of a law enforcement officer, it's generally assumed that the posse hunting him had no intention of bringing him in alive. Also, compliments to Jay Kingston Pierce for the nice use of Thorovian loner. Okay, back to the story. Long before the corpse reached Montesano, gawkers were crowding the streets of that town to see what was left of Torno. They came to inspect the cut of this man who had evaded posses and bounty hunters for so long to see what sort of person was able to kill six men or more and then hole up in a secluded forest cabin for months with little to eat but bullfrogs. Most of all, the curious wanted to view the wild man's face. Deputy Sheriff Giles Quimby, who'd finally brought the outlaw down three days before, on April 17, 1913, told newspaper reporters that his reclusive quarry had, quote, "...the most horrible face I ever saw, the shaggy beard and long hair out of which gleamed two shining, murderous eyes haunts me now. I could only see his face as he uncovered himself to fire a shot, and all the hatred that could fire the soul of a human being was evident." Unquote. It's no wonder, then, that spectators rankled the eleventh-hour efforts by Torno's two brothers to prevent the body's public display. A mob of up to 250 people stormed the doors of the tiny Montesano morgue not long after the wild man's remains arrived there, and coroner R.F. Hunter decided it would not be in anybody's best interest to refuse them entry. Fully 650 people passed through the room where the gaunt figure lay within a space of 30 minutes, reported Portland's Morning Oregonian. Thirty deputy sheriffs forced the crowd to move in single file and prevented, by force, their tearing off bits of the ragged clothing from the corpse, cutting off locks of hair or whiskers or cutting off pieces from the table where the cadaver lay. Fearing that the hundreds who couldn't get into the morgue would show up at Torno's funeral, his brothers held a service very early the next morning at their family's old Winucci Valley homestead, and then posted sentries around the gravesite all night. 
Souvenir gatherers would have to be satisfied with postcard photos of Torno, which were available on the same day his body was carried into Montesano, and with relics of the great outlaw of western Washington that were displayed at least as far south as Portland over the next few months. The Seattle Daily Times carried a story proclaiming that what finally convinced the wild man to shun human companionship was his brother Ed killing his prized hound when John Torno was about ten years old, an incident that provoked John to retaliate against Ed's own dog. Whether or not that tale is apocryphal, it was at ten that Torno began to vanish into the forests for weeks at a time. He would return only for brief visits with his parents, usually toting game. Before Torno reached puberty, it said he could plug a snuffbox with a rifle at 100 yards and take down a deer with a single, precise shot to the heart. Another man might have been left alone to his country sojourns, but Torno's brothers thought him, quote, touched. They captured John and sent him to a private institution in Oregon where he was treated for insanity for nearly 12 months until he could escape and head back to the Satsup Valley. No word came of him for another year. Then, finally, Torno began showing up at a farm where his sister, her husband, Henry Bauer, and their two boys lived. He had no contact with his brothers, whom he blamed for his incarceration. But he would be sighted occasionally in the woods, a bear of a man, some six feet two inches and two hundred pounds. Uh, side note, I'm six feet one inch tall and about two hundred and ten pounds first thing in the morning, and I'm not sure anybody would accuse me of being a bear of a man. Other sources for this story, however, report he may have been up to six four and weighing nearly two hundred and fifty pounds, making him arguably more ursine in nature. John would be sighted occasionally in the woods, peering with the curiosity of an infant at loggers as they did their work, then vanishing when they tried to talk to him. Most people thought him harmless, if a bit spooky, but Murray Morgan, in his excellent book The Last Wilderness, quotes one timber cruiser as saying that Torno told him he would defend his solitude. Quote, I'll kill anyone who comes after me, the wild man is supposed to have said. These are my woods. <laughs> Okay, while John did say this, it wasn't to a timber cruiser. He said it to his brother, Ed Torno, who absolutely did not get along with John. The two went back and forth with each other, each raising the stakes until both of their dogs had been killed at the hands of the other, and John only threatened Ed's life if he continued to antagonize him after he turned his back on society for good. It's not like he walked around threatening people regularly. More on this later, but for now, back to the essay. Unfortunately, Torno's 19-year-old nephews, Will and John Bauer, didn't heed such warnings. Not long after they tried to convince their Uncle John that he should return to civilization, on September 3, 1911, they were found lying dead amid some fallen trees. Each had been shot once in the heart. Suggestions at the time were that Torno killed the teenagers in a fit of confusion, that his nephews had surprised a bear feeding off one of the Bauer steers and had begun firing at it. Torno, who happened to be in the same area, may have thought they were hunters after him and murdered the boys in self-defense. But Gordon Godfrey, an Aberdeen attorney who has studied the Torno case for decades, believes the boys had their Uncle John as their original target. Quote, Torno killed them, Godfrey says, because they were going to kill him. <laughs> I have to agree with Bill Lindstrom on this one. It seems extremely unlikely that the Bauer boys were intentionally trying to kill their uncle, given the amount of time he spent with them as they grew up. 
After all, John Bauer was named after his Uncle John, who taught them how to hunt, how to fish, gave them their first knives and guns, and was a welcome visitor to his sister's home as long as her husband, Henry Bauer, was away. The theory is much more plausible that John had killed a cow for food, something a wild bear had also done in recent weeks, and the boys may have mistaken John for that same bear, which caused them to fire in his direction. Not seeing the boys, but hearing where the shots came from, Torno likely fired back, accidentally killing them. Also, I'm not sure about the accuracy of the each-shot-once-in-the-heart report. Pierce doesn't cite the coroner's report, however, Lindstrom does, and he talks about that in the upcoming interview. Posses were sent out almost immediately, but found little save for a few of Torno's abandoned hideouts. They did, however, manage to scare loggers enough that the wheels of the timber industry ground to a temporary halt in the woods about Montesano. The Simpson Logging Company found it impossible after a while to recruit surveyors who would venture out to do any work there. Hunter stayed away too, leaving the area's plentiful game to Torno. Then, in February 1912, trapper Lewis Blair and his partner came across the carcass of an elk in the Oxbow country of North Montesano, a sign they thought that Torno was about. Deputy Colin McKenzie, a friend of Blair's, and game warden Al V. Elmer went to investigate. They worked over the territory for several days with a bloodhound in tow. On March 9th, the dog walked into Blair's camp, alone. A posse found its missing masters only after a deputy sheriff stepped on a shallow mound of earth in the woods, dug down a bit, and, as the times told it, saw Elmer's upturned face. The men had been shot several times and then stripped of their clothing, jewelry, and weapons. From here the manhunt turned dark, deadly, and vengeful. Louis Blair wanted the head of his friend's killer as well as a $3,000 reward offered for John Torno. Over the next year, he and Charles Lathrop, the childhood friend of Torno's, stalked the wild man. At first the hermit avoided them, but the persistency with which Blair hung to his tail angered him, said the Times, and finally being convinced that the latter was after him, the outlaw awaited the final moment to put his two most fearless enemies out of his way. <laughs> Quick note, the essay doesn't close that quotation from the Times, so we can only assume that last part is part of the quote. Otherwise, it sounds very much like the essayist is speculating on John's motivations. That time didn't come until April 1913, when Blair and Lathrop, along with Deputy Sheriff Quimby and a pair of bloodhounds, tracked Torno through the snow to a crude shanty built over a swamp near a tiny lake west of Matlock. The best access to the cabin was over a small footlog, giving Torno the easy drop on even an invading army. Quimby wanted to head back for a posse, but the trappers had no wish to share the bounty money. So all three started stealthily toward Torno's cabin, their rifles cocked, fingers poised on triggers as frogs in the lake accompanied their footfalls with a symphony of croaks. Now this is a cool part of the story that is 100% true. John would actually tie strings to the legs of bullfrogs and stake them into position near that footlog so that he would hear their incessant croaking stop if someone or something was approaching. It's really a stroke of backwoods genius because it also provided him with a reliable food source should the elk and deer become sparse. Back to the essay. Suddenly there sounded a roar made almost deafening by the thick woods, and Louis Blair staggered and collapsed within six feet of a skinny hemlock from behind which Torno had fired. Lathrop shot from his hip at the tree, but a bullet from Torno's revolver caught the trapper a fatal blow in the neck before Lathrop could do much damage. Quimby was farther away from the hemlock and had a better chance of surviving the ambuscade. He fired seven times at what he described later as, quote, a large bearded head, more gorilla than human. 
his 30-30 rifle bullets clipping the hemlock bark off in large chunks around the outlaw as Torno fired back. And then... Silence. Had Quimby hit his mark? Or was Torno just playing dead, hoping to get a better shot at the deputy as he moved in to investigate? When Quimby finally dared to move, he hightailed it almost 18 miles through the woods to a lumber camp and help, hearing behind him nothing but the wanton baying of the trapper's dogs as they discovered their owner's fate. It took a day for a posse and pack horses to reach the scene of the crime where they found Torno dead in a sitting position against his protective hemlock. He was dressed in clothing patched extensively with gunny sack material and stuffed with evergreen needles, as well as a new, if too small, pair of loggers' caulked boots and a black hat that had once belonged to Colin McKenzie. Inside Torno's cabin, Lawman found a good blanket and two quilts on the bed, as well as some cooking utensils, all evidence that he had either raided nearby homesteads or received assistance from sympathetic locals. He had apparently survived in seclusion on a diet of elk meat and frogs. After Torno's body had finally been packed into Montesano, his brother Fred, up from Portland, told the press, I'm glad John is dead. It was the best way now that it is over, and I would rather see him killed outright than linger in a prison cell. The Oregonian noted that at the time of his demise, John Torno had $1,700 on deposit in a Montesano bank, owned real estate in Aberdeen, and part of a timber claim in Chehalis, and had no bad habits, having never used tobacco or liquor in any form. Giles Quimby, proclaimed a hero for bringing the wild man to justice, fielded offers to appear on the vaudeville stage and tell his gruesome tale of manhunting, but politely turned them down. Some stories, he may have realized became legend without the need of stage drama. And that is the end of the History Link essay on John Torno, the wild man of the Winucci. And while it does a good job of giving you the basic idea of the story, there is so much more to know about the man, about the myth, and about the many other players involved. That's where a good book like Bill Lindstrom's comes in handy. For example, it's important to note that John Torno nearly died of the measles when he was very young, and his lengthy time spent in an excessively feverish state probably caused him a good deal of brain damage. This may have been the cause of John's lifelong antisocial tendencies, and, if you'll pardon the historically appropriate lobotomy pun, it's not like there was cutting-edge mental health treatment available in the early 20th century. Also of note is the fact that the Torno family property bordered that belonging to the Schaefer family, who also felled timber for a living. Today's Schaefer State Park is actually part of their original homestead, and in Torno's day there was a conflict between the two families. The Torno land bordered the river, while the Schaefer land was the next parcel inland. Because of this, the Schaefers had to haul their lumber over land for miles before they could get it to a suitable site for transport. They had asked the Tornos if they could purchase an easement through their property so as to move their logs straight through to the river, which would then take them downstream to the mill. However, since the Schaefers and the Tornos were essentially competing with each other for timber resources, the Tornos refused to sell. As a result, the Schaefers would often log Torno land purportedly by accident to the obvious great irritation of the Torno family. Relations between the Schaefers and the Tornos wasn't exactly good. 
And finally, one of the often overlooked aspects of this story, which was a huge part of the mythology surrounding John Torno, was the botched abortion of John's niece, Mary, that resulted not only in her baby's death, but in her own. This part gets a little incestuous, but follow me toward the explanation. Much of John's consternation with his family stemmed from his relationship with his brother Ed. In a time when hard work, sweat, and backbreaking physical labor meant that families could eat and survive another winter, Ed was the type who routinely tried to shirk those responsibilities. He was well known as the last one to wake up in the morning, the last one to finish breakfast and head out begrudgingly to accomplish his meager chores, and the first one to return, complaining about his unfair lot in life. John, by comparison, was much more like his father someone who felt more at home working with his hands and appreciated the value of a day's hard labor. The two personalities often clashed, culminating in Ed being 50% responsible for John's involuntary commitment to a sanitarium. And despite how angry that might make a person, it still wasn't the worst thing Ed did to John. That distinction resides in the moment when Ed began to take a romantic interest in his own sister's daughter, Mary. John and Ed's sister, Minnie, had married Henry Bauer and moved to a nearby homestead to live their own life. They had Mary, followed by the twins, William and John, who, as I said, was named after John Torno. Once Mary had reached her teenage years, as most teenagers do, she began arguing with her parents a lot and was sent to the Torno homestead to hopefully benefit from the elder guidance of Minnie, John, and Ed's mother and father. Unfortunately, while she was there, Ed took a liking to her, and the two eventually began a sexual relationship, which resulted in the teenaged Mary becoming pregnant by her own uncle. Once John found out, he confronted Ed, the same man who quote-unquote accidentally shot John's dog. In retaliation, John ended up shooting Ed's dog, announcing that he would be disappearing into the woods and threatened to kill anyone who tried to come after him. You can read more about how all that went down in Bill's book, Villain or Victim. When Mary's pregnancy became visible, Ed convinced her to get an abortion, a criminal offense at the time. He took her to Aberdeen to see Dr. Robert Stapp, who was known to perform the illegal operations. Mary, unfortunately, bled out on the operating table, setting in motion a chain of events that ultimately led to a very public trial that captivated the local media, specifically a cub reporter named Dan Cloud, himself a Nisqually Indian, as well as the local populace. Though Stapp was only sentenced to a few months in jail for Mary's death, the loss of his niece caused by his own brother never settled with John. It's one of the many reasons why the assumption that John maliciously and intentionally murdered his own nephews doesn't make any sense by any stretch of the imagination. Now, I think we've reached the point where you have enough of the background to hear the rest of the story from author Bill Lindstrom. His efforts to memorialize every aspect of this tragic and fascinating tale are one of the main reasons why I love doing this podcast and the blog and the videos. These stories deserve to be told. Ah, but first, it's trivia time. You thought I forgot, didn't you? These questions are all going to be vaguely related to today's story, and as always, I'll have the answers at the end of the episode so you can test your knowledge of Washington State history, heritage, and culture. And I have to admit, I have four books filled with nothing but Washington State trivia. These questions were inordinately hard to find. Question one. What was the name of the Iron Man of the Ho who could easily carry a cast iron stove? 
The Ho River, of course, is geographically near the Winoochee, and another man with a similar moniker to the Wild Man of the Winoochee is a great reason to include this question. What was the name of the Iron Man of the Ho who could easily carry a cast iron stove? That's question one. Question two, what was a big problem in logging country in the 1930s? There was a clue for this answer earlier in the episode, if you remember. Big problem in the logging country in 1930s. What was it? Question three, where is moored a full-size replica of the ship that Robert Gray used to explore the Washington coast? Obviously, it has to be related somehow or another to today's tale. So where is a full-size replica of Robert Gray's ship moored? Question four, which of Washington's three national parks is as big as the state of Rhode Island. This one shouldn't be too difficult to get. There's only three of them, and uh, we're talking about issues that are somewhat related to a geographic area specific in Washington state. Question number five. What do the Queets, Quinault, and Ho rainforests have in common? This is a trifecta of places that are near the area of the Winucci River where John Torno spent all that time in the wilderness. Queets, Quinault, and Ho rainforests. What do they all have in common? Think you have the answers? Listen to the end of the podcast to find out if you're right. And without further ado, it's time to hear from the subject matter expert himself, Mr. Bill Lindstrom. I'm sitting here with author and former newspaper writer Bill Lindstrom, uh, whose recent book is John Torno, Villain or Victim. Correct. Before we get started in talking about the book, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background and your career. I know you're a longtime newspaper man. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you got started in journalism and writing. (laughs) Well, I got started in journalism uh, in an absolutely amazing way. Uh, I was in the eighth grade. I needed a um, an elective to fill out a, a course, um, and uh, I asked a friend of mine. I said, "What does this J word mean?" You know, did not even know. He told me. I said, "Well, I think that's kind of working on newspapers." I hmm, well, that sounds like fun. So I did. Um, about six weeks into the course, the teacher asked if. Um, is there anyone here who would like to um, interview a very important person who's coming to town? And nobody raised their hand. So finally, I did. So I did. And that's how I got started in journalism. Who was the important person? The important person was Richard Nixon. Really? Really. He was the vice presidential candidate for Dwight Eisenhower's second term. He was from Southern California. I was in Southern California, where where I was basically grew up and went to college, and um, that was that was my first assignment. I I went with the instructor, a security officer. He was speaking at the courthouse. We went into the judges' chambers before everything started, and the four of us um, sat down there and talked. Uh, I've been asked, what did I ask him? I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> I'm, I do know for a fact I did not ask him if he was a crook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and then your career just went downhill right after that, and right? No, not 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 at all, not at all. Um, I worked for both the L.A. Times and the Herald Examiner when I was in high school, as well as the um, high school newspaper. When I graduated, I went to uh, Sterling, Kansas. Before I got there, I was named uh, sports editor of the college newspaper and the town newspaper. Was it a small town? It was a town of about 2,500. There were more students in the college than there were in the town. So how did you end up in the Pacific Northwest? Well, that was in 1974. Uh, I was on the end of a, um, a trip around the United States, and we stopped to visit a fellow in Olympia. And he said, well, why don't you uh, apply for the sports editor job here? So I spent 11 years at Olympia. Um, and then moved to um, Aberdeen. And um, I, when I moved to Aberdeen, I became news editor and then city editor, a uh, position I had for 21 years until finally retiring in 2013. Where do you spend your time, your days now when you're writing? Oh, I'm editing another person's book. In fact, it's the editor of The Villain or Victim, um, Bob Dick. And he spent two years on an icebreaker, uh, Storis, up in the Bering Sea in the Gulf of Alaska in the 1960s. Um, and he has some fascinating stories about commandeering Russian trawlers and mm-hmm. and um, and some r- really tragic stories about uh, going on search and rescue because that was their primary um, job at that time. But I'm just having a ball uh, editing that. And so it's a real Cold War saga. I've heard two jokes on that now. It's a Cold War saga. And, uh, yeah, he's getting his bearings straight. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) What drew you to the John Torno story? The thing that, well, I was actually assigned. I was city editor, and I was assigned uh, to interview a fellow who wanted to have a memorial uh, or a tombstone erected for John Torno. And I said, uh, after studying this story a, a little bit and getting doing some research on it, I said, this is a really good story. Why isn't there a, a um, tombstone? And he said, well, there is. Come on out here and I'll show you. So we went up to the cemetery, which is the Grove Cemetery on the Brady-Matlock Road. And what we discovered was a broken rock and a coffee can marked his grave. Uh, right next to his parents and right in front of the Bauer boys, the twins, who he was alleged to have killed in 1911. Um, This was a story that needed to be told. And so I started to do research on it. I contacted the county uh, commissioners in Grace Harbor County, and they agreed to fund a a tombstone for, not necessarily for John Torno, because there were some people who felt that you were, you know, glorifying a killer if you're going to be doing that. Well, it's not... It's not that at all. It's for the um, for the Northwest legend of, that became the John Torno story. Uh, there was a memorialist in Aberdeen named Marty Schmid, who um, he, he came to me and he said, I don't want the county commissioners to pay for that. That's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. And he did. He went down to Ashland, Oregon, brought back some Ashland granite, and fashioned a beautiful three and a half foot tall 
monument. His uh, office secretary, Marsha Peterson, did an engraving of two boys uh, in the woods hunting for a bear, which is the story um, that um, why they were in the woods and then uh, didn't come home, and then they were, they were allegedly shot by John Torno. There were no eyewitnesses to that, so we really don't know what happened. But um, after Marty um, did the um, tombstone, and we decided to have a dedication, I contacted the Seattle media. Como TV was the only one that responded. They came down and filmed for four hours um, on all of the various Torno um, um, landmarks uh, around the story. Um, we got two minutes and 45 seconds on the evening news the next day, uh, which is a lot for any type of event. We were very thrilled with that. And um, the next, then the day after that, um, there were more than 300 people showed up for the dedication um, at the Grove Cemetery. And I knew then that it was a story that was going to be much more than uh, an article in the newspaper or even a series or that. Do you think that this story would still be told 106 years later if it was just known as John Torno, the murderer? No. Do you think the moniker Wild Man of the Wenoochee is what gives it the legend that it has? Uh, I think so. I think Wild Man of the Wenoochee was also called the Beast Man. And it's. Uh, I'd like to point out, though, too, that this is what he became— after he was alleged to have killed the boys, and now he's fighting for preservation of life. And everything that happened in the woods in those uh, almost two years was um, attributed to John Torno, whether, whether there was um, you know, a murder or there was uh, a theft um, and, or whether there was a fire set to a house or, you know, everything was attributed. Anything that happened was attributed to him. But he didn't necessarily do maybe the majority of it. No, he didn't do any of it, I don't believe. it. First off, it wasn't his style. My, uh, John was John was like a big teddy bear um, until you crossed him. I mean, he would give you a shirt off his back, but if you crossed him, he'd take yours. You know, it was a situation that uh, they're looking for a wild, a man uh, who they're calling the wild man of the Wainuchi. And and the sad part about that is every time there was a story uh, or a um, an, an allegement of uh, some sort of activity, the sheriff had to go uh, stop his pursuit of John and go to um, check on this other situation. And they found people like Billy the Bear, who, who was an old-timer who, who lived out in the woods, and it wasn't John Torno at all. He was like John, wanted to be left alone and, and to live his life as a hermit, um, basically. They found guys like Cougar Smith, um, who, who was an, another old-timer. Um, Cougar Smith has a road named after him in um, Matlock area. Any of these so, guys have uh, names like uh, that aren't ferocious creatures? Uh, no. <laughs> Tadpole Johnson or uh... I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so there were other individuals living in the woods. I mean, this is this oh, is. Oh yeah. Well, not only were there individuals living in the woods, but there's after the killing of the boys and then the killing of the um, 
the deputy in, in 1912 and the game warden who were sent out to look for him. But after those, after those uh, deaths, there was a bounty of uh, almost $5,000 that was out for John. So it was not only just the local posses, but it's, it's bounty hunters from uh, Boston, Mississippi, um, you know, uh, Florida, everywhere. That's a lot of money. Everywhere. That's going to draw That's in. That's a lot of money. Those folks. Right. So, and, and what's also interesting is nobody saw him. For 19 months in the first, most ferocious winters that the Wainuchi has ever experienced, snow, cold, rain, always rain, uh, nobody ever saw John. And yet he was able to, he was so resilient, he, he knew exactly how to live in the woods. Now you mentioned the bounties. Do you think it was irresponsible on the part of the posse and the sheriff to put a bounty out without specifying we need to take him alive. He's not been convicted of any crime. Well, I think in in those days when you had a bounty, um, and particularly at that sizable one, it was always um, dead or alive. They did not specify alive, to my knowledge. Uh, We have never seen a a bounty poster, by the way. Um, We have a a number of people who have been doing research on this project. Let's go back and talk a little bit about the story itself. Um, I, I loved in the book how you were able to weave if a, a, a fictional narrative. It is historical fiction, but it's really historical nonfiction because virtually everything in the book is true. Um, one, one of the parts that um, is not true, and I, I do say this um, in the introduction too, is that uh, Dan Cloud, who's the reporter who I used to tell the story, um, but Dan, I, I just felt that this guy needs a companion. So I did develop a companion for Dan, and that's Lindy, who um, follows him and, and actually goes on some of the searches with him. So Dan Cloud, real journalist. Real journalist. For the Aberdeen... Oh, well, the, well, the Montesino Vidette first, right. and then the Aberdeen world. In the early 1900s, how unusual is it that a Nisqually Indian has a job as a journalist at a major city paper? Uh, very unusual. Um, in fact, he's the first one, I believe. Until you have the really big story, um, you're a cub reporter. So his uh, he shed his cub reporter status in covering a, a trial that's an um, extremely important part of the book. Uh, a uh, doctor who was alleged to have uh, uh, performed a criminal abortion on um, John Torno's niece, Mary Bauer. Um, Stapp, right? Um, Dr. Ro- Stapp? Dr. Roy Stapp, right. that's correct, yeah. And um, and then Stapp was convicted and sent to prison. Um, he was later pardoned, but uh, but he did, he was sent to prison uh, for that criminal abortion. And that was the uh, that was the beginning of the rift that developed between the Bowers and the Tornos. When you are writing and you are taking the limited amount of information that history makes available to us. And weaving it together with a little bit of narrative here and a little creative license glue there, do you ever get folks 
who come to you and and say that they don't appreciate that or that they that they maybe think that your creative liberties and your 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 license to exaggerate certain th- details uh maybe is a doing history a disservice do you have critics like that no uh not not to my knowledge anyway um i the the only critic that um actually it was members of the grace harbor sheriff's department um that were very critical of us trying to get the torno lake um officially named torno lake um everybody in the wenuchi area and aberdeen and um, Montesano in that area know that area where John was was eventually killed the shootout no they know it as Torno Lake we were trying to get it officially uh, named that on the board of U.S. geographical names and um, the there there were uh, two members of the Grace Harbor Sheriff Department who came up there and said you're you know, this is wrong. This is wrong. You're glorifying a killer by doing this, and mm-hmm. and um, no less an authority on geographical names on on Seattle history and all of that as Bill Spidell, who ran the underground uh, for many years. Um, I should say the late Bill Spidell. Um, you know, spoke up and said, you know, that's not what they're doing along with Mike Murphy, who was a county commissioner in, um, in Grace Harbor at the time. So we had a lot of people on our side. Um, it eventually was denied because it didn't qualify as a lake by having water year-round. Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite understand that because I know there are dry lakes in California, for instance, in Nevada, um, and they have names, not just called dry Some of them are called dry lakes. Right. Uh, but others of them have names, and they're dry. Speaking of the lakes, um, I read in, in another book about this subject that there was a rumor that John Torno had some silver pieces that he had stashed away either uh, near a lake or near a body of water. Did you come across any evidence of something like that in your research? No, only the rumors. Um, and they're, and they still pop up on the website, for instance. Um, he was, a, the, the story is the, he was, and then like I say, anytime there's any type of thing that happened in those days, they alleged it to John. Um, he was alleged to have taken, uh, believe the total was about $15,000 in gold coins. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> From, uh, what was called then the, the Jackson County. Well, the first of all, there wasn't a Jackson County, um, store, uh, which I don't even know where it is. I did not believe this story. It is not John's MO or anything like that. I mean, he just didn't. And what would he spend the money on? Right. What's a man who lives but out in the woods exactly. going to do with? The, the, the real turning on, on this one is the fact that I talked to a um, coin collector and I said, now, $15,000 in gold coins in 1911... I said, how much would that be? And he said, about three tons. Wow. There's no way you can haul that around uh-uh. the Winnucci <laughs> Valley, right? So I, I definitely just discounted that one. But but uh, beyond that, it's just not John. Yeah. John was like a big teddy bear. And, um, you know, he was... Um, 
um, people would leave food out for him. They would leave ammunition. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was killed, he had a brand new pair of boots on. And his boots were quite interesting. We actually found one here not too long ago. His boots, and we know it's John's because of what he did with his boots. His boots were always smaller than his feet. So he cut the toes out of the of the shoe. Hmm. And there are even there are stories in the book and in the newspaper about how the sheriff was able to track him in the snow and still couldn't catch him <laughs> because they knew it was him because of the toe prints. Right, it'd be a boot print with five toes in exactly. front of it. Exactly, yeah. Hmm. yeah. This is just an absolutely fascinating story. It is a fascinating story, and I think it's one of those stories that more people in Washington State should be aware of because... It helps to to spread the the legend and and the the you know and educate people about Washington State and its history. A lot of people think that you know out here we don't have history on the West Coast. A lot of folks think that well the history is on the East Coast. Well, if yeah, or if the history we have is cowboys and Indians, right? And that's, that's it. Yeah, and that's the limit of it. <laughs> I found uh, this story to be particularly tragic and fascinating at the same time because. To me, it seems that John is a poor guy who just got caught in an unfortunate uh, crossfire of circumstances. I feel like he had the, you know, his measles, which could have potentially left him with, um, you know, mental uh, issues. Couple that with all of the politics of the day between the the, the Schaefers wanting to move their timber across the the land and the bowers not liking the the tornos because of what had happened with their daughter there's a number of of things that are all sort of unintentionally conspiring to point to john did you agree with that i I definitely agree with that yeah um and and also the his own family property his dad had given to him 400 acres in in the uh, what is now Schaefer National uh, State Park but at the time was in Mason County that the brothers were trying to get away from him trying to have him declared insane and uh, but they weren't able to do that the sheriff um, the younger brother actually filed a insanity warrant um, the sheriff went up and served the warrant sat down and talked with John, came back and said, there's nothing wrong with this man. Um, others have said, well, John was a demented man and should be put away, you know. So, um, yeah, it's the crosshairs, absolutely, yeah. You mentioned in your book that John and his nephews were very, very close. He taught them how to fish. He taught them how to hunt. He gave them their first knives. He gave them their first guns. And that their mother... Minnie, Minnie was um, very supportive, that she would, uh, you know, sort of assist him and wait for Mr. Bauer to leave, Henry, Henry Bauer, to leave, uh, and then John would come and visit. Do you really think that it's possible that John could have shot those two boys himself? I do think that. I know a lot of eyebrows go up when I say that and when, I, when I'm talking, but I, but I do believe that he may have shot them at, on accident. And the reason is that, um, as the scenario was uh, pointed out, when the uh, sheriff and the posse went in to uh, collect the bodies after the boys were killed, 
they've kind of put together a scenario of what may have happened at that last shootout. And they believe that the boys were at the bottom of a ridge. Um, they were probably two, two and a half miles away from home. Um, they had been uh, sent out by their father to uh, look for a bear that he believed was ravaging their cattle. They found the bear when they went out to get to get the boy's body or look for the boy's bodies. Uh, the bear had been shot. The bear had tracked blood through the mid part of the ridge um, before falling and became paralyzed at the bottom of a ridge. Posse member actually went over and put the bear out of his misery at that, that time. But the scenario that the sheriff put together was that the boys were at the bottom of the ridge. The bear was mid-ridge. Behind the, where the bear was and up higher, uh, closer to the top of the ridge was a lean-to that they believed would belong to John Torno. And then directly behind that lean-to was a cedar tree. And upon um, closer examination, they found two uh, bullets in that cedar tree that uh, were the same caliber that John shot. But they were also the same caliber that the boys uh, shot because John gave them their rifles for their 16th birthday. And a lot of people used 30 so, 30. And there were a lot of 30 30s yeah. in those days, right? But um, the reason I believe that it was John is that he <clears throat> he was um, he was believed to use what was called the line of sight motion when he's hunting, and basically what that means is that he will wait, and often often uh, there were times when that people would say that um, you know he would wait for even an hour for a deer to move, you know be before firing. Well. What what he what he's doing is he's looking for movement, and as soon as there's movement, he's going to fire. Well, if he's in the lean-to, and all of a sudden there are two bullets that come whizzing through over his head and lodge in the tree behind him, he's going to go immediately to that opening in that lean-to, see movement um, with the, the boys down at the bottom of the ridge, and not having any idea who's shooting. And remember, he, he, he already gave the warning, anybody ever come, come after me, I will kill them. Um, so he fired immediately. But there's more to that. <clears throat> when he gets down there, he finds that John Bauer mm -hmm. um, was not yet dead. Um, but he had, a, he had suffered a, what may, may have proved to be a fatal blow. John Torno doesn't miss. There was a close-up shot that they determined when they did the autopsies, and um, and I believe that he put John out of his misery at that point. Mm. There's his more. namesake. His namesake. His namesake, and named after him. Mm -hmm. But there's more that I believe John John was involved in too. He buried them um, in a very shallow grave, um, so that they would be discovered uh, quite rapidly. And to call attention to that grave, he had leaves piled on top of the grave. Leaves don't fall in piles. Somebody had to have piled those on. Right. Interestingly, to find one of the bodies, um, it, it took them all morning and into the afternoon. They didn't think to look right next to the other body for another pile of leaves. 
they eventually found it, but it took them another couple of three hours before they found it. But they weren't looking for somebody who piled leaves on top of graves. So, And these two boys uh, were buried together? They were buried within a few feet of each other. Uh, actually, they were on one side of a log and the other one on the other side of a log. The posse brought, the next day they brought the bodies back in. And when they got back there, one of the posse members piped up and he says, he says, oh, that's the work of a demented man, you know. And the sheriff pops up and he says, no, no, that's a very intelligent man. Have you yourself been out to the site where a lot of these things happened? Have you seen the 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 trees where the lean-tos were built or the the shed where where John spent a lot of his time growing up have you been there to experience and absorb that history in person i i've been to the homestead in 1987 i was taken to the homestead by a member of the family who had purchased it um it was looked entirely different from what it what it does today well first off there there is no homestead there today it's been uh i think there's a modular home there it's on the brady matlock road um at about the seven mile marker uh the only thing the only building that's still there that that um was there when in Torno's time is the shed that he went to. Um, I have been to the shootout site. In fact, um, our committee, we, we have a John Torno committee, a collection of Torno nuts, uh, as we kind of call ourselves, but uh, a lot of people who have a lot of history and, and really enthusiasm and zeal for this subject. And um, we decided in 2011 that we wanted to have a tombstone or a memorial erected for to honor the victims. Nothing has ever been done for the victims. Mm-hmm. There's a plaque in um, Grace Harbor County Courthouse that addresses that um, Elmer and McKenzie were killed in the line of duty um, as uh, deputies. Um, nothing for Blair and Lathrop, who were the last two that were killed. We decided we wanted to have a a memorial erected, um, and we did, and we wanted to have it dedicated on the 100th anniversary of the killing of John, and we did that. Uh, There were more than 120 people traipsed out to the middle of the the Wainuchee woods and uh, witnessed that that ceremony, including three great-grandchildren of the last victim, Charles Lathrop. Uh, Where's this memorial located? Well, it's located 26.9 miles north of Highway 12 uh, on the West Wainuchee Valley Road. People know where um, Wainuchee Lake is. It's about eight miles south of that. Um, it's about three miles south of the old Camp Grisdale on the Wainuchi. And I've been there many, many times, but um, I've been up a wonderful spring day or summer day or whatever. I'll just take off and get up there. And it's so inspiring to sit there by that memorial. And not only is there a memorial there, but there are cedar posts that indicate where uh, where Torno stood where Lathrop and Blair fell and where Quimby was when he shot and killed John. And some members of our committee have put together, we've had brochures and they're laminated and posted on the trees. There is a sign-in book 
And that's absolutely amazing to go through that and to see the comments and people from all over the United States, even in Europe, who have been there. We're on our third sign-up book, and we've been it's been up there since um, uh, late August of um, 2013. So we're, we're into our sixth year now. Are there any descendants of either the Tornos or the Bowers who are still alive and or around the area? The, answer, the short answer to that is no. There are Tornos who are great-grandchildren of um, a couple of the brothers who live in the Chehalis area. And amazingly, um, some of them have never heard of the story. That is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) So last question. When you're out there uh, on a beautiful spring day, like you said, uh, at the memorial site, deep in the woods, does it feel like John Torno's spirit is still there? Um, absolutely. I, that's one of the things I do. I just sit and reflect on what might have happened. It's a fascinating story, Bill. I want to thank you very much for talking with me today about it. And uh, for anyone listening, please go check out the book. It's called John Torno, Villain or Victim by Bill Lindstrom. It's available. The book is available at a number of different outlets, Orca Books, um, browsers. Um, It's available at the uh, State Library. Uh, If you're in the South area, it's available at uh, Chehalis Book and and Brush. Uh, It's available at Lewis County Museum in Grace Harbor. Uh, There are a number of places, but primarily Duffy's, uh, Duffy's Restaurant, Polson Museum, Dennis Company, um, actually 31 different sites uh, from Tohola to Ocean Park. Bill, thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. That's it for today's John Torno podcast. Now you know the true and tragic tale of the wild man of the Winucci. As I mentioned, it's one of my favorite stories of Washington state history, heritage, and culture, and just another reason why Washington is the greatest state in the lower 48. Let's get back to the answers to those trivia questions. Question number one, what was the name of the Iron Man of the Ho who could easily carry a cast iron stove? That man's name was John Hulzedonk. Hulzedonk. H-U-E-L-S-D-O-N-K. John Hulzedonk. Question two, what was the biggest problem in logging country in the 1930s? Log rustling. That's when people would steal your logs without you knowing about it. Question three, where is moored a full-size replica of the ship that Robert Gray used? That's in Aberdeen, Washington. And question four, which of Washington's three national parks is as big as the state of Rhode Island? That, of course, is Olympic National Park. And question five, what do the Queets, Quinault, and Ho rainforests have in common? They all get 12 feet of rain per year on average. Please take a quick second to rate this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, or whatever podcast listening service you happen to use. The more ratings we get, the more people can find the podcast and help spread the word. A five-star rating would be much appreciated. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes featuring stories from Washington State's history, heritage, and culture. And follow Washington Our Home on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's lots of great video content on YouTube. And if you're looking for scenic pictures from around the state, look no further than the Pinterest pages. 
Please note, I'll be migrating all of the photos I have of Washington away from Flickr and over to the Pinterest and Instagram sites, so look for those there. Hope you enjoyed this month's episode. You can reach me at Eric, that's E-R-I-C-H, at WashingtonHourHome.com to send feedback. Ask questions, just say hello. Next month, I'm putting together the Quintessential Washington State Pronunciation Guide. So if you've ever wanted to know the real way to pronounce words like Pendoreilly, Sequim, Bingen, and Wackiacum, well, you'll want to listen for the real references. Until then, I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington. <laughs>